Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and on today's show, Joy takes a trip down memory lane, back to her days following the Grateful Dead with the host of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. They share stories about how the band inspired the movement that's finally sweeping across the world. Let's join Joy's conversation with Jim Marty and Larry Mishkin from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Well, welcome, Larry and Jim. Thank you so much for being with us today on Hemp Baron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you very much. Well, we've got two of you on here, so I'm going to do my best to direct questions so we don't talk too much over uh, one another. But I'm very excited to do this show today because you, of course, you two gentlemen, also have a show on the MJ Bulls uh, menu of podcasts called The Deadhead Cannabis Show. And uh, as a hardcore deadhead myself, it's just a wonderful to be able to to do this with you. And of course, you, Larry Mishkin, are an attorney of yes. counsel at Hoban Law Group, <laughs> based in Chicago. So very excited to talk about some cannabis law and policy, particularly as it relates to hemp with you and the Grateful Dead. Sure. And Jim Marty, you're a CPA with Bridge Rest out of Longmont, Colorado, a place that we all know and love so much. We've got highbrow, professional, educated, deadhead podcasters on the line, and it's, it's really fantastic. I want to first start with you, if I could, Jim. When did you first discover hemp, first of all? When did the, the awareness of hemp come into your world? Oh, I think it was the summer of 2016. We got our first hemp farmer client. So yeah, Bridge West does a lot of work in the world of marijuana. We have about 350 cannabis license holder clients around the country, and we do their tax returns. And so the hemp was a natural fit for us as well. And so through our publicity in the marijuana world, hemp farmers in Colorado found us. And now we have, oh, probably two dozen hemp clients from extractors. Uh, We have people selling their product over all over the world through the internet, various CBD and hemp products. And we have quite a few farmers. In fact, on Sunday, I went out to the country to visit one of my friends slash clients and looked at 250,000 pounds of shredded hemp in a barn in white plastic bags, very large plastic bags that would like hold the whole person. Each bag weighed about 250 pounds. Yes, we call those super sacks in hemp. Those are called super sacks. Yeah, I'd never seen those before. So They are quite a staple part of the hemp agricultural world. And for all I know, also the agricultural world is so fascinating because I, I look at the world through hemp eyes, whereas a farmer looks at the world through agricultural eyes. So some things that I think might be unique to hemp are absolutely not unique to hemp. They're used in every crop, but I only learn about it through my deep involvement in the hemp industry. So unlike me, you learned about hemp organically, so to speak, um, in Colorado, doing your work at the forefront of the cannabis revolution. And you can take advantage of so much of those opportunities in Colorado, obviously, because there are all forms of cannabis have been legal there, as well as being in the forerunner, the forefront of the hemp movement. I, as I think you gentlemen know, learned about hemp on the Grateful Dead parking lot. So I learned all kinds <laughs> of things on the great <laughs> on the Grateful Dead parking lot. I learned about natural childbirth. I 
learned about world religions. I, I learned about self-care and veganism and vegetarianism. Um, I learned about regenerative agriculture, and I learned about hemp. Well, in, the, in this world, you learn something new every day. I certainly have had my share of fun in Grateful Dead parking lots. Yeah, my first <laughs> Grateful Dead show was January of 79. I have a bit of a unique experience, I think, in that I saw one of the very last Keith and Donna shows in January of 79. Oh. My girlfriend at the time had got us tickets for Christmas, and it was me and her and her brother Brian, and somehow we were in the fifth row, center. I was making eye contact with Jerry, my very first show, and Brian, the brother, he goes, Jim, this guy next to me says he's been to 25 Grateful Dead shows. Can you believe that? So anyway, uh, what do you do with a girl like that? Ah. Well, it turned out I, mar I married her, and, and we've been married wow. uh, almost, almost 40 years. Man, because you knew without asking, she was into the blues. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Anyway, five months later, May of 79, the Grateful Dead did a tour of college spring concerts, and they did our spring concert May 12th, 1979, and that was one of the first Brett Midland shows. So I saw one of the last Keith and Donna shows and one of the first Brett Midland shows. Amazing. And were you at, Larry, the Fairly Well tour in California? And he might, Bill Kreisman, one of the two drummers, for the listeners who don't know of the Grateful Dead, may have worn this T-shirt to other concerts, to other performances. But when Fairly Well occurred and he was wearing a hemp T-shirt up there and the huge monitors focused on Billy playing his his heart out for all of us with this beautiful uh -huh. hemp t-shirt. Um, it was hemp wants you. That was, the, that was what was on his t-shirt. Hemp wants you. And I'm actually getting chills. I'm, I'm easily pleased because of course, hemp and the grateful dead run most of my life and my spirit. And I'm getting chills as I say it, but that was more recently, right? That was 2015, 2016, I believe. And, and there he had that t-shirt on. Now, Larry directing this one to you, See so many people involved in hemp that do appear to like the Grateful Dead, or at least those who, who are part of pioneering the hemp movement. We will Now we've got everybody, and I love it, folks who have never heard of the Grateful Dead or who never would want to hear a song. But the folks who have really been part of the pioneering the movement seem to have some connection, more often than not, with this incredible band. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's, you've really hit on something and what it really does. And I always be careful when I say this because it exposes what probably a lot of people think are really the dirty little secret. If you ask, you know, your average person out on the street to describe the deadheads, I've heard it generally and, and as nice as can be described, you know, it's the great unwashed masses, which of course is from the deadheads going on tour for two weeks and usually sleeping in their car straight. And by the end of the tour, it can get interesting. But what people fail to truly recognize and realize is that if you were to go and grab any 30 or 40 deadheads out of any basic concert, you'd stumble across doctors, lawyers, judges, people from all walks of life. The people who go to dead shows are people who do have a tendency to be in a position where they can get involved and where they can make a difference. And I like to think that that's what's indicative of a person. You really want to read a person, you start talking to them about their music and interests and see what they like. As soon as somebody swings to the Grateful Dead, that's always a good sign for me because it suggests to me that they have a real sense of community, right? That's what you really get from all of this. And for a lot of us, I can certainly speak for myself, that was the magic of the parking lot was as opposed to walking across the Diag or 
the center of campus, you know, wherever you are, and there's, you know, a million people going in a million different directions. And it was always fun and wonderful to be out there, but everybody always kind of seemed, you know, to have their own agenda and doing their own thing. You walk into a dead show, everybody's on the same page, you know, no matter what else is going on in their life at that particular moment for those two or three hours, everyone has the same singular focus. And so it's an opportunity, I think, you know, to be part of a community and to get, you know, an almost spiritual feeling that a lot of people wind up going to church for. In that respect, it's the same type of community, I think, and the same type of giving spirit. And I certainly echo your statements, Joy. You know, I saw the dead over close to 110 times, and we would always make a point of getting there with enough time to spend a little while in the parking lot, you know, both before and after the show, because that's where you met the most interesting people. And that's where you learn, you know, the most interesting things. Some of them, quite frankly, were a little bit out there and, you know, probably more product of what the person had uh, ingested that day than anything else. But there were also a lot of people out there that really had very good and interesting things to say. Probably the second or third show I was at, because I I had purchased a a hand-drawn picture of Jerry Garcia from some guy in $6, and I had a $5 bill. And he said, fine, give me the $5, here's the picture. And I saw him at another show about... A month later, you know, when we were talking, I walked up to him and said, oh, by the way, here you go. Here's that extra dollar I owe you. You know, and he was like, oh, cool, man. I wasn't worried. You know, and it occurred to me, this is just that kind of a community where you can be dealing with anybody and they all treat you like family and treat you the same. And it, it, it's a good environment. It's a very fertile ground for, for these types of ideas to be passed along. And certainly there's a long and strong connection between Grateful Dead and marijuana and cannabis as well. And I think that that's no coincidence. Jerry has openly talked about the importance that cannabis played in in their community. Certainly for me, it was really kind of a unique coming together. I grew up in a neighborhood in St. Louis where uh, not a lot of my friends smoked marijuana. In fact, I didn't really know anybody that did while I was in high school. In my house, it wasn't really an option. And then I went off to college to the University of Michigan. And lo and behold, there were people getting high and listening to the Grateful Dead. So the combination of the two kind of hit me there. And when I finally went and saw my first concert in the summer of 1982 out in Ventura County on the beach, what really struck me almost from the very beginning of the show was this sense that the music, you know, and I would like to always think particularly Jerry's guitar, but the music was touching and activating the same part of my brain that the marijuana did. And it created a very nice overlay for me where the two went together as good as can be And it was all very natural to be there and be involved in that community and be listening to their music. And given the time and the money and the opportunity, I would just as soon be spending any evening in the parking lot and then in a dead show than pretty much anything else. Oh, Uh, I I love it. I love every. Oh, go ahead, Jim, please. Oh, the Grateful Dead played a large part of influencing me to sign cannabis tax returns. Because in 2009, when the memos came out from the Obama administration that they wouldn't interfere with state-compliant marijuana businesses, they all needed an accountant. They all needed someone to do their taxes. I was one of the very few in Colorado who said I would do it. All these Grateful Dead shows, how could I say no to these people? Wow. And and so amazing to, to really understand that that inspiration, that tribal community, and Larry, that's really what you're describing. You're describing a tribe. And that's the way it really felt for me being on dead shore. It was a tribe. And, and we would, now I get to see all the same people from hemp conferences. And I even actually very recently have said, man, I used to get to hang out and do great work and have fun with everybody based on music and the Grateful Dead. And now I get to 
see everybody and travel around and do great work with everybody based on hemp. And but but yet it is the Grateful Dead that you know propelled us all forward. And and Jim, we're talking about chopping the wood and carrying the water for building the infrastructure to liberate the world's most versatile, valuable plant that meets every need of humanity and every living being. And you sat there and you chopped the wood and you carried the water because of that inspiration and that inclination. You said, this is happening, a, a framework is coming, and I'm going to be part of this infrastructure. And you are part of birthing that and empowering that, using your credentials, using your education, using your license to really move it forward. And it's just so amazing. And and Larry, I just wanted to quickly follow up on a couple of things when you said, you know, you take a group of 30 deadheads and you're going to come up with a judge or some lawyers, a doctor or the, a government official, a school teacher. You know, when I remember one of my favorite bumper stickers from, from Grateful Dead Tour, and I'm sure you remember them, and it said, from good homes. And it like had some like, stick huh. figure, from good homes. Right. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. We, we may not have showered for three days in the sunshine because we were camping and listening to music, but we're from good home. So, hey, I mean, I remember the Clinton inauguration. I marched right over to the Clinton inauguration in Washington, D.C. because Al Gore sure. was a deadhead and Bob Ware and Phil Esch were playing on the mall for the inauguration. It was a big deal. I went with several deadheads. See, they did play at the Obama uh, inauguration. They were an invited guest of the Obama. I had friends who went and actually saw them play wherever you know they did their inaugurational night show. But they were all there dressed out in tuxedos and everything. And, you know, my only comment on that was it's too bad that Jerry wasn't still around to see him in a tuxedo would have been a sight. Talk a lot about marijuana and other substances that are already experiencing third phase clinical trials. I did entire tours where I didn't actually see very many shows at all. That it wasn't, I mean, I would have loved to have gotten into the show, and but I literally just wanted to be a part of the circus of the traveling community. And my life was on that parking lot before the show, during the show, after the show. This sure. tribe, it really inspired me. You know, the Grateful Dead is such a proponent for expanding human consciousness. They are also incredible proponents for planetary healing, songs about it, absolutely making sure that groups such as Greenpeace and others had a spot and a presence at shows and so on and so forth. Just really empowering educational experience that has altered the course of my life has in many ways created who Joy Beckerman is. I love what you're saying, and, and you're right that and, and the environment that they create has been the, the petri dish, if you will, and the launching ground for so many things. Of course, the, the dead famously really kind of came together as the house band for Ken Kesey's acid tests back in the late 1960s. They helped usher in the whole era of psychedelic and all of that, and only now is the medical community beginning to catch up to that. And, and you're right, right out in, in Denver, and Jim can speak to this, although they just did it in Illinois too, that psilocybin has been decriminalized. It's not legal yet. It's still against the law, but it's, it's got a low-level priority enforcement. People are recognizing that there is some benefit, potentially at least, in these types of things. And you think about, you know, geez, 35, 40, almost 50 years ago now, the Grateful Dead were helping host events that were, you know, really just bringing this to life and giving people an opportunity to see what it was and experiment at a time when there were, there were not many other places where people could go to do that kind of thing. That's, to me, what's always been great. Living here in Colorado, we're not quite sure what the psilocybin 
thing means to anyone, but a few observations are it's not the state of Colorado. It's just the city and county of Denver that passed it. Okay. Red Rocks is a city and county of Denver Park. So does that mean psilocybin is legal at Red Rocks? I don't know. I think what it really means is small amounts in your possession for personal use is no longer a priority for the police. So that's good news for people who like to experiment with psychedelic drugs. You know, one of the first times Larry and I got together was at Fairly Well in Chicago, and we really, really enjoyed those shows. Great shows. Joy, it sounds like you made it to the California version of Fairly Well. Yes, sir, I did. San Francisco. Boy, did I want to get to Soldier Field. It just the dates didn't work. I desperately wanted to be in California at those shows because, of course, the first night of Fairly Well in California was the night that they came out and they played all of their, you know, late 60s uh, psychedelic tunes. That was their, you know, throwback night. And by the time they got to Chicago, those tunes had been played and they weren't recycling them out. That was the show that I was sitting around waiting to hear talking about the dead and all their psychedelic stuff. That was always my favorite era was late 1960s, Oxamoxa and Anthem of the Sun and uh, the, the, the live shows that they released from the Fillmore West. And I can sit and listen to that stuff all night. It's just tremendous. See that girl barefooting along? Oh, man, me too, brother. That was awesome. And uh-huh. as I went, I was able to go with my, my husband at the time to fairly well and also one of the pioneers of the hemp movement and actually hemp and cannabis and that's Don Workchapter who by the way if you go to cannabismuseum.com he's got one of the world's largest collections of artifacts and we published an entire book I was very honored to be able to edit and help produce that book the Cannabis Museum Compendium but it's been absolutely prolific for all forms of cannabis but he also formed the Ohio Hempery way back in the early 90s and brought in the first bolt of fabric that we started making the first hemp clothes here in the United States, creating them ourselves. He brought in the first shipment of sterilized hemp seeds from Inner Mongolia and bought a tabletop seed press and sat there and pressed the first post-prohibition hemp seed oil from these Mongolian sterilized hemp seeds. I had the hemp first hemp store in the state of New York in Woodstock in the early 90s, and none of us would have had hemp stores if it wasn't for the Ohio hempery and stocking our shelves on the front. So, <laughs> And so it was so great to be there with him. But I also wanted to ask both of you gentlemen and just share a very quick story, but have either of you heard or know of the book Emperor Wears No Clothes? No. Yes. One yes, one no. One yes, one no. Excellent. Boy, will you love it. I, now I know what I am going to be getting Jim for Christmas. <laughs> and I'll be so excited. You will be so delighted to read it. But so when we're going back to the Grateful Dead and the way they affected this movement among so many, like I said, I chose to have two children at home, natural childbirth, because of what I learned on, on the Grateful Dead parking lot. And side note. I did that in the state of New York at a time when even planning a home birth was unlawful, by the way. The practice of midwifery was also unlawful when I had my children phoenix rising and spiral walking in balance in upstate New York on the floor at home with illegal midwives. That has since been changed, thank God. But that was an issue there. And that's something I learned on the Grateful Dead parking lot. And spiral walking in balance, by the way, was born on 420 in 1994. And many a deadhead said, Joy, I swear that boy's going to pop out on 420. And he absolutely did. <laughs> this, <laughs> book, <laughs> this book, Emperor Wears No Clothes. Yeah, career, my favorite. Yes. 
and we discussed it in our previous conversations, but the point is Jack knew and Chris Conrad knew in creating this book with all of the documents, the information and unleashing of the information as to the rich history of hemp in the United States and beyond and all of the attributes of hemp that had been hidden from us for so long, they knew getting that information out to the Grateful Dead tours would be like propagating seeds. You put it into one show, there's going to be 50,000 people there, and the show travels and travels around to all of these different cities and towns, and that information literally propagated like a crop it propagated, and it created people like me and people like Larry, and just such powerful, powerful stuff. Any other observations in terms of the connections between the Grateful Dead and any form of the cannabis movement that sort of strikes either of you gentlemen? Well, certainly, I think they were one of the starters of it. Before the Grateful Dead, hardly anybody smoked cannabis, maybe a few beatniks in Greenwich Village. But it was the Grateful Dead who made it really part of their shows to where, you know, at at Grateful Dead concerts, it was always joints being passed around. Uh, I think they had a lot to do with, you know, the common usage of marijuana that started in the 60s and 70s. And by the time we got to college, in the evening, in the dorms, you know, the smell of marijuana was in the hallways of the dorms. Yeah, I think they were very much a part of getting the whole thing started. I remember in 2016, on May 29th, I put this all over Facebook. So I'm looking at a poster right now, Grateful Dead. It says, aid the end of marijuana prohibition, a benefit ball. Grateful Dead with Big Brother and the Holding Company at the California Hall. May 29. Huh. Yep. 1960 freaking six. When I put that yep. post up and I said it's been 50 years since the first benefit to aid the end of marijuana prohibition. And keep in mind that 66 was the 1970 Controlled Substances Act hadn't even been created yet. They were dealing right. with the prohibition from the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, which merely taxed and regulated all forms of cannabis out of out of existence really so uh, in that post i said guys the grateful dead it had only been 29 years of the marijuana tax act and they already weren't having it by 1966 the grateful dead were like no we're not having this here's what they've done they've created a safe space and jargon safe spaces are all the rage but they were doing it years ago before anybody knew what to call it right but no matter no matter where you lived and no matter what type of repressive environment you were growing up in if you can make it to a dead show and get inside you had free reign. It's still that way. And by creating an environment where, you know, not only was it comfortable for people, but very much part of the norm, I, I think it gave a lot of people an opportunity to kind of step over that bridge who might not otherwise have, you know, have done it like that. And that's the thing that I always liked about it. When I took my oldest son, uh, who's now 28, the back when he was in high school, so probably 14 or 15, and we went to see Denning Company. And they were playing out here at the Rosemont Horizon, which is out by the airport in Chicago, where the dead always used to like to play. Not the greatest place in the world to see them sound-wise, and uh, always kind of had a reputation of cops who were a little bit rougher than they needed to be. That's where the show was. So we went out there, and as we walked in, predictably, there was a ring of cops all around the building, and you had to walk through the, the line of cops to get into the building and go through the security. And when you went in and you sat down in your seats, there were cops visible everywhere. And the lights turned out, and everybody in the place lit up. And my son turned to me and was just absolutely amazed and said, I don't get it. There's all these police officers here. How is this happening? And I said, you know, son, when you step into a Grateful Dead show, you're in a, another time's forgotten space. While oh. you're there, you, 
you do what you do, but just remember that when the show is over, the, the magic bubble goes away. You, you can't go traipsing outside because that's what they're waiting for, and then you'll have a problem. In here, all good. Out there, not so much. Oh, every hair standing on end as you speak because those moments are so sacred and so special. And in fact, Mr. Chicago, I remember <laughs> Soldier Field shows back in the 90s. Because we, we basically yep. were, they were just babysitting us. I mean, they're used to alcohol, 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 whether it's a stadium, a game, a rock and roll concert. Oh, yeah. Used to fighting, conflict, violence, and alcohol. And when they got the Grateful Dead, they were just babysitting us. And see, and back in, you probably remember back in the early Soldier Field days, they let us camp even into the 90s. They still let us have right. fires in the parking lot. And I would see... Sure policemen joining in the drum circles with us, playing bongos and congas around these fires with us. Where does that happen? And right. I remember in Madison Square, one time I struck up a conversation with a policeman. Again, we're talking while Jerry was still alive, still back in the 90s. And I remember him saying something to me like, you don't think we don't actually know what's going on in those parking garages, do you? We do. We're just making sure that you're safe. <laughs> And so there's any number we of activities a, going on in the parking garages, but they wanted to make sure we were safe. Yeah, we had a, a New York City cop in Madison Square Garden who got high with us. He kept commenting the whole show. And we kept saying, no, no, this is too strange. And finally, by the end of the show, he walked over and he sat down. And he goes, you know, we like the Grateful Dead, too, just because we have cop uniforms on. He reached over, he grabbed the pipe, he took a hit, and we all said, wow, okay. Speaking of the special moments, the magic moments, I always remember a buddy of mine, 1990, and on the way home, he goes, you know, there was moments there where the band and the audience and the music, we were all on the same page. We were all just right there, right together. And yeah, there was definitely those special moments. Didn't happen every show. Some shows were better than others. And, you know, you'd go yep. one night and you just leave walking three feet off the ground. It was such a wonderful experience. You come back the next night, and it would seem like they'd play every slow song they knew. But that's what we were doing, right? We were chasing that moment because we knew once you saw one of those shows, you were hooked. And you'd go to see every show, and God forbid you missed a show, and that was the night you know, where they hit on all cylinders, right? It was always kind of chasing that last good buzz with them, uh, looking for it. Because you're right, Jim, on a night when they were operating on all cylinders and the crowd was right there with them, it's magic. There's nothing I've experienced like it anywhere else. Yep. Even if I could make an attempt at trying to explain through some layman's terms of metaphysics what that magic is, that magic moment that you're talking about, it could be visually displayed, I think, almost as a fractal that is partly transparent and partly not, because we're talking about the energy, the vibration that gets created by the music and the instruments and the people that literally uplifts the vibration to such an extent that we're in an in-between world, in not a physical world, not a completely spiritual world. We're all here, but as the incredible artist Alex Gray would say, a cosmic plasma that would mm. manifest itself. And in that cosmic plasma, that's where the magic was born and miracles occurred and amazing things were manifest in the physical world during that cosmic plasma. And that's what we, I think, are always shooting for is that spot right there. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. That's that's right. 
And that's the empowering piece of that tribal community. I'm on to something here. I'm not crazy. I'm on to something here. Other people feel it, see it, know it, think it too. And all of that empowerment and all of that tribal community is what brought me to a place of comfort and bravery. I, didn't, I never saw it that way as courageous or brave or blah, blah, blah. People would just say, you know, you're crazy. <laughs> but no, I must not be crazy because I just came from a, of a concert with 50,000 people. Then I guess they're all crazy too. Excellent. It is great. Great stuff. For all of the work that you do in law, Larry Michigan, and the way that you empower people, just so grateful for it. So grateful for the contributions you make to your community through your work. And Jim, I, I really can't say enough for you to be able to sit there and have done income tax returns for people when 280E and just being able to get a professional service provider to even look at you, give you the time of day much less dare to associate their license with your tax return. That was brave. That was courageous. And thank you so much for being a part of building that infrastructure. And I'm, I'm so glad that you've got quite a healthy little practice now. Yeah, well, we're actually um, a national firm now. I got acquired a couple of years ago. So Bridge West really is a bridge, no doubt about it. And Larry Hoban Law Group, I mean, I don't know if it gets more heroic of a law firm all forms of cannabis empowering and but not just serving clients as you well know i i've often said i don't actually know how bob can afford it he, he's hopefully doing really well because the amount of pro bono time that he lets loose basically volunteering armies of lawyers and deploying these lawyers to do non-billable work that advances the interest of all forms of cannabis, whether it's banking, regulatory, manufacturing, testing, regulations, insurance. It is just some of the most important work in the world. And, and Larry, thank you so much for being a part of it, brother. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I really do. The Hoban Law Group is a special place. I, I practiced in a large firm in Chicago for almost 10 years, and then I was out on my own for almost another 20 and I swore to anybody who would listen that I would never have anything to do with a law firm again. And then I met Bob. We met and I loved it because we could talk about marijuana. We could certainly talk Grateful Dead. He talks it like nobody's business. And we really hit it off. You know, he explained this concept of national coverage that he was doing. Uh, but the thing that really drove the point home to me was the first time we had a firm-wide meeting. And I came home and announced to my wife that I had never been in a group of lawyers that large before without being able to identify the asshole. And so... Uh, that for me uh, was a very, very positive thing. And, and to see that the, the, the atmosphere and the attitude that all these people bring to the table and, and the fights that they're willing to fight. And uh, it just seemed like if you want to be a lawyer and if you want to help fight this fight against society that's putting any restrictions on cannabis, this is the place to be. And it's been a fun experience every minute of it. Oh, it's so fantastic. Well, I can't wait to meet both of you gentlemen in person. And Jim, I think it's going to be sooner rather than later for you and I, because I part owner and senior advisor to Colorado Hemp Works, that post-prohibition grain, hemp grain processing facility right there in Longmont. So I'll be reaching out to you. And Larry, I can't wait to, to meet you in person, brother. And, and I hope we get to do this again. I'm so uh, grateful. I, I, I have to keep saying that word because I am, but uh, no pun intended well, and also every, every pun intended. I'm so grateful for your participation today and on the show. I, I agree. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't give a special thank you and shout out to our producer, Dan Humiston, who was really the link that brought all of us together and made the introduction. And Dan's been wonderful for me to work with over the years, and I really appreciate that. And this is just another great connection that he's helped me make. So thank you, Dan. Yes, I agree. Thank you very much, Dan. Great job.
God, talk about chopping the wood and carrying the water and building infrastructure. Dan is the epitome, a lightning rod for that. So I, bravo, here, here, affirm. Thank you, Dan. Well, gentlemen, gentlemen, again, thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for carrying the torch and the spirit through the work that you do and in your communities. And I'll be looking forward to our next encounter. Fare thee well. Fare thee well indeed. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.